Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I'm really actually very happy to be here. I couldn't have said that <laughs> for maybe the last week, but I'm starting to feel that now. <laughs> That's what you think. Uh, so, <laughs> who here, just by a show of hands, who here is familiar with the story of the sacrifice of Isaac? Who knows that story? Okay, most. I, I kind of assume that would be true. It's, it's one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament, one of the, probably the most famous in the Bible, if not in you know, all of uh, recorded history. And it's, it's famous because it's this amazing story of a man who is willing to sacrifice his own son, right? Because he trusts God to raise that son from the dead. Abraham gets mentioned in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews as like this hero of the faith. Uh, even Jesus says, you know, Abraham looked forward or rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. We know this Abraham pretty well. I actually want to talk about an Abraham that's before that Abraham, an Abraham from the beginning of the journey. It was, he was this idol worshiper from Mesopotamia in about 2000 BC. Um, I want to talk about where his journey began. And I want to talk about how he got from sort of point A in chapter 12 to point B in chapter 22, how he covered in in 10 chapters, how he went from a a non-believer to not just a a believer, a monotheist, but a a father of of the Jewish people and a hero of the Christian faith. I think this is a really important question for everybody here in this room, because we're all on a journey. Uh, Some of us have just started. Some of us feel like we've been on it for a very long time. I know that during my journey that there's been times where I feel like I'm kind of stuck or mired in like a certain sinful pattern of behavior. There's been times like probably now in my life where I kind of feel like I'm on a a plane that's uh, sort of easy and leads to complacency and sometimes even apathy. Uh, You maybe had places where you feel like you're in a pit where you're abandoned and you you can't really believe that these promises that you've been, that you've heard from Scripture can be true because they seem very, very far away. Uh, probably as far away as they seem to Abraham, you know, when he was an old man wandering alone in a strange land. So we want to look at this journey, and we want to start at the beginning. I'm going to read from Genesis uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make, you, make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's pray. God, in your word is truth. Please reveal that to us. Amen. Okay, I want to f- I'm sure that you guys have probably heard this in uh, other sermons. You've probably seen it and heard it in a Sunday school, maybe in your own uh, time and study. It's, a, it's, a, it's probably verses we're all familiar with. I want to focus on one particular aspect of the promise that Abraham made, and it's the part of it that he reemphasizes in verse 7 when the Lord appears to Abraham again and says, To your offspring I will leave this land. So of all the promises that God makes to Abraham at that moment, two of them are very tangible. Right? He promises Abraham land, uh, even though Abraham has never seen this land, and he promises him children, even though at this point Abraham is 75 years old and obviously childless. 
So think about it from Abraham's point of view. He spent his life surrounded by mute idols. Suddenly the God of the universe speaks to him. This is an amazing beginning to a journey. I would suspect that none of us sort of have shared exactly that type of beginning to our journey, but we probably understand what it's like for our journey, our our faith journey, to begin kind of with a bang of enthusiasm, right? I remember for me, it's like you suddenly feel like you have direction and purpose. Life has meaning. You know where you're supposed to go. You know what you're supposed to do. Uh, And so you, you have this sort of burst of enthusiasm in your faith. Abraham had that same burst because right after these words, Abraham leaves the home in Mesopotamia that he's known, the only home he's known, and he goes to Canaan, this hostile land. He goes there and he starts building altars around the land. And at each one, he worships God. And what he's doing here is very similar to what an astronaut does when he plants a flag on the moon. Right? It's, a, it's a faith claim. He's symbolically claiming this land. He's saying, I may not possess this land yet, but I claim it. In Abraham's case, he claimed it in the name of God. An astronaut might claim it in the name of his country. But they're doing the same thing. And it's an incredibly audacious claim in either case if you think about the situation both are in. Abraham's surrounded by hostile tribes. You know, the astronaut surrounded by the vacuum of space. Uh, but this is his sort of bang of enthusiasm, right? Very exciting. But for all of us who have been through this, we know that after that initial sort of burst, you know, life kind of creeps in little bumps in the road, little unexpected turns. And then the challenge, well, how do you respond to that? Let's see how uh, Abraham responds in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken in to Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, and camels. Okay, so the bump in the road is famine. The God of the universe has spoken personally and directly to Abraham and promised him this land will be yours and you're going to populate it with children and kings will come from them and all these wonderful things. And Abraham's initial response is a a, a huge thank you. But then not long after, it's kind of a, well, you know, God, I don't see a lot of food here, so I think it might be best if I move to Egypt and live like a bachelor for a while. So he, and in one fell swoop, you see Abram separated himself from both tangible aspects of, the, aspects of the promise. The two things he could actually touch and feel are gone. He separated himself from the land and he separated himself from the children by separating himself from Sarah, his wife. You can go on to the next slide, Peggy. Now, this sounds harsh, right? Because Abraham is our hero, and we don't like to hear that in his very first move, he goofed up. Uh, We don't want to believe that's true, right? But I would say it may be harsh. I'm a harsh person. But it may be 
that we also struggle when expectations don't meet reality. When we have this expectation of Abraham, that he's this kind of amazing guy. And then we see things like this. Sometimes it's the, the image of the person we want to hold, and it's the facts that we tend to ignore. And so we ignore obvious conclusions that we should draw from the facts. I'll give you an example of this. My nephew, little nephew, came to me the other day when I was home. And he said, uh, Uncle Joe, he said, what is green and smells like blue paint? And I was like, I thought about it, and I said, I have no idea. And he said, uh, green paint. And <laughs> so, I mean, that's pretty obvious. But I missed it, because I, I was looking somewhere else for the answer. So I would say that in the case of Abraham, that the same thing is happening. There's an evidence here of a pattern of behavior, right, that we have to sort of be aware of. Uh, I can give you three other examples where this pattern sort of bears out. Uh, exhibit A is the offer that Abraham makes to Lot. After this story that we're talking about ends, Abraham and Sarah do make it back to the promised land. And as soon as they get there, Abraham and Lot tend to you know, be at each other's throats because they have so much stuff and they have trouble getting along. So Abraham comes up with this immediate rash plan Let's divide the promised land in half. You choose whatever half you want. And so scripture says that Lot lifted up his eyes, and that's sort of a way of saying he sort of drank it all in. And he saw that the Jordan Valley was beautiful, and so he took it. Who wouldn't? And suddenly Abraham finds himself separated, again, from at least a huge part of the promise that God made to him by his own actions. Exhibit B, 10 years later, Right? Abraham and Sarah are both getting a little bit impatient, waiting for this promise. They hatch this desperate plan. Abraham takes matters and Hagar into his own hands. And he comes up with this, this plan, right, to create an heir on his, on his own timing. That leads to a distancing between himself and Sarah. So again, he's, he seems to have, every time he makes a move, it, it tends to kind of work against the goal. Exhibit C, the last one, is a trip they make to Gerar. Now, this is right after God comes to Abraham's tent, sits down, and says, listen, Abraham, this child that I'm promising you is coming, and he is coming through Sarah. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. So stop treating her like she is a disposable part of this plan. Abraham's reaction to that is the next thing that happens in Abraham and Sarah's life is they get up they head to Gerar, they leave the promised land again, and he does this sister act a second time and sends her away to the king and separates himself again from the promise of children and the promise of land. So I would suggest that this is enough evidence to say that, you know what, there's, there's pretty clear indication that while Abraham is pursuing on some level what he would call God's plan, he's really doing it by taking matters into his, his own hands, right? So... You know what? I'll give you another piece of evidence how I know this, uh, how I think this is true. In all these chapters, as I was looking through them, chapters 12 to 22, it kind of, it kind of hits you when you look at them. Abraham never petitions God on his own initiative. He responds to God. They have conversations. But in all these moments of crisis and all these decisions, never once does he stop and pray. It doesn't happen. Um, that's actually very convicting for me. So the question is, why this pattern of behavior that we see, if we accept that that's true? Well, I think there's one kind of obvious answer, and that's pride. Uh, Abraham seems to be operating under the assumption that God makes the promises, 
but that it's Abraham that keeps the promises. All right? God makes promises. I keep the promises. And we all know that making promises is easy to do. Anybody can make promises, but it's the keeping promises that's hard. So, God, so Abraham's kind of saying, I think it's what's happening is God is making a promise, but Abraham is hearing an obligation. Abraham, all this will be yours if you don't screw it up. So Abraham wants to not screw it up, and he's willing to do what he needs to to make sure that happens, and he's willing to follow sort of his own counsel to do that. I think that pride, this self-centeredness, cuts a path that is so deep and wide through our hearts, through my heart, that I'm hardly aware of the way that it's warping my, my attitudes and my behaviors, uh, my pursuits, even if they're godly ones. Um, I'll give you kind of, it's kind of a silly example, but it's a good example of how much, how much pride I have in my life. I was, um, I was like taking a little run the other day. This is, uh, this is not pantomime. This is what it looks like when I run. It's very sad. But I'm, I'm taking this little run. And as I'm running down, I'm crossing this, this big driveway. And this vehicle comes up, you know, kind of beside me on my blind side. And he turns, like he's going to turn into the driveway. And he crosses traffic, stops, so that we're kind of, you know, head to head with each other. And so at this point, I'm already very irritated, right? Because if anybody has attended the Joe Brehob School of How to Do Everything Exactly the Right Way, you know that this was avoidable, right? He could have waited in his lane until I had crossed, or he could have manned up and hit the gas and crossed in front of me. I would have maybe slowed down a little bit, but then I would have moved on. Only one of us would have been inconvenienced either way. But instead, here we are sort of playing this, you know, you, you, no, you, game, a game which I detest. And so I broke the tie, and I just run forward, okay? And, and then after I'm passed, he goes in. So you, hearing this story, you might say, okay, I do detect just an edge of self-centeredness in the way that you approach pretty normal daily events. But I would tell you it is so much worse because there's three things I left out of the story that are true. One, the vehicle was a paramedic, Okay. <laughs> Two, he had his sirens on. <laughs> and three, the driveway he was trying to access was a senior living center. And so, but all I was thinking about was, you know, the time of my run. So after I cross and he goes on to do whatever he's going to do, I suddenly have this epiphany. And you would think the epiphany is, what a jerk you are. Stop, ask forgiveness, pray for the person that he's going to, Ask for forgiveness for the way you've, you know, made his job harder. It was none of those things. What happened was I suddenly realized this is an amazing sermon illustration for (laughs) self-centeredness. I did. And so I, like, I immediately, I was like, thank you, God. And I ran home, like, light of foot, like a gazelle. So, obviously, Abram and I share this issue with being a little bit self-centered. The question you might ask is, so why is this a problem? Because this is our nature. I mean, we ourselves. So it's our nature to look at things from this point of view. Well, I would say one problem, there's many, but one problem with this is, is that when you, out of pride or self-centeredness, when you take responsibility from God, something he has said, I will make happen, and you assume that control, the immediate result of that is fear, right? Anxiety and fear. 
That's because you have, you have transferred responsibility from a party that you should have every reason to have confidence in because he's infallible to a new party who you have personal experience is unreliable and very, very fallible. So you're going to suddenly have doubt in the outcome of whatever the issue is. There's, there's an example, I think, that we collectively share in this. I know I do. It's the church building. Right? The church building is something that we perceive as a part of this promise that God has made, that he is going to make his church flourish and that nothing is going to prevail against it. We have that promise, that assurance. And so we see this as one small part of that plan, you know, building this church. This is fantastic. But for me, fear and anxiety start to creep in. You know, are we, are we moving too fast? Are we moving too slow? Is the church building too big? Is it too small? Are we spending too much? Should we do more? Are we short-sighted? Are we biting off more than we can chew? And I start thinking about all these things that are under our control to change and that the whole thing hinges on us making the right decisions. And what's happened is I've sort of taken responsibility for the growth of the kingdom of God, something I am not equipped to handle. And no wonder I've become so anxious. So the only advice I can sort of give myself in that situation is just hand it back, right? And the minute I hand it back... I'm still concerned, right? I'm still involved, but I'm not anxious because the outcome is completely assured at that point because I put the right person in charge. So we left Abraham. (laughs) Thank you. I wasn't waiting for that. So when we left Abraham, he was wandering from the promises of God. He's kind of acting on his own. He's got himself alone in a foreign country, um, not quite mission accomplished, Uh, we see in this how Abraham responds to God. Next question is, well, how does God respond to Abraham? Before we answer that, I want to put up a contrast. And the contrast is, well, how would I respond in a situation like this? Let's say that there's somebody that I have authority over, somebody that I'm supposed to be caring for, and they are working against or disobeying Sort of my express will. It's expressed out of love for them. And my best example is my children. That, that's who I, this kind of fits for. And so I think, well, what do I do? How do I react when they behave that way towards me? I have three stages I go through. Stage one, you are dead to me. Okay? <laughs> this, is, this is the stage where I start thinking, you know, what are my minimum legal responsibilities to this child? <laughs> Do I, am I, do I have to feed them? Can I make them pay for meals? Are there military academies or boarding schools that can take them? And this can last for me like for like a millisecond to like a couple of days. And then eventually I'll move to stage two, which is you can still fix this. Okay, this is when I'm not interested in their apology. I'm not interested in their sorry. I'm interested in them making it right by something that they do, something that they can do to make atonement for that. Now, keep in mind, this is how I treat people I love the most. If you are, say, a stranger, there is no stage two for you, right? (laughs) Stage three, finally, is forgiveness, all right? And this obviously comes very unnaturally to me because it's the last one in the stage. And, you know, you look at this and you think, uh, I mean, I'm making a mockery of the gospel, when I do this. The same children that I read the Bible to at night, I treat like this during the day, right? They're the only ones that aren't laughing, right, when they hear this. Um, Thank God. Uh, God does not have to respond to Abraham 
out of fear. I respond to my kids out of, out of uh, a sense of pride. I don't like to see my authority challenged. And out of a sense of fear, I'm afraid that this must be a sign of me failing. God has neither of those concerns when he responds to Abraham in verse 17. Let's see what he does. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that this was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. All right. We've seen how Abraham responds to God. We've seen now how God responds to Abraham. Your question would be at this point, interesting information, so what? What does this matter to me on my journey? Whether I've just started, I'm kind of stuck in some sort of a sin pattern, I'm feeling very complacent on this very like even plane, or I feel trapped or in a pit. How does this help me? And my, uh, my answer to you is that, at least this morning, I have no advice for you. Uh, there is no possible advice I could give to a bunch of you know, uh, self-centered, uh, fearful, anxious creatures like ourselves, right? The only thing I can offer uh, is news. The news is that the point of these stories is not, uh, you know, if you just act like Abraham, then your journey will be a success. If you just emulate what he does. I would say that the story is not about the twists and turns in the life of Abraham. It's about the steady hand of God. And that's what we're supposed to be focusing on. So I want to kind of finish by focusing on, on just that. And the three aspects of God that kind of come out to me when I read this story is that he is present, he is powerful, and he's patient. So he's present, powerful, and patient. By present, I mean that even while Abraham is sort of bouncing around, doing his best to sort of make things happen, God is continuously involved in Abraham's life. He is continuously involved. We saw that when he rescued Abraham and Sarah out of Egypt just now. But you also see it in those exhibits that I gave. In exhibit A, the offer to Lot, it's, is it not God who steps in and says to Abraham, now, you lift up your eyes. And in that, that language, he's like revoking the agreement that was just made with Lot. He says, you lift up your eyes. Everything north, south, east, and west, that belongs to you in that promise. In exhibit B, the Hagar affair, it, was it not God who stepped in and separated off Hagar and Ishmael, saved their lives, gave them a future, gave them a destiny, and one that was separate from what was really kind of an untenable situation that he had with Abraham and Sarah, what they had with Abraham and Sarah. And in exhibit C, the trip to Gerar, again, it was God who steps in and literally makes a wake-up call to Pharaoh. To the, the, to the king and sends him, sends Sarah back to Abram and sends them both back to the promised land for the second time. So it, time after time after time in Abram's life, it is God who steps in and is present and is, and is active. And God does this in scripture, whether it's huge issues like parting seas or little issues like lost axe heads, God is involved. So when we hear that, we should be very careful not to believe the lies that we kind of teach ourselves that are not in Scripture. Lies like God is, a, is like a, a watchmaker. He wound up the universe and now he lets it run very elegantly while he stands far off. 
or God is a God of the big religious decisions in your life. That's when he steps in and has a dramatic moment with you, and the rest of it, he's sort of ignoring you. Or that God is a God of the finish line. You know, he's sort of waiting you to com- for you to complete your journey or your race, and then he's going to tell you, well done. God is not a God of the finish line. He is at every single turn of your race. The other thing that Abraham learns is that God does not wait for permission. God does not wait for permission. In fact, I would say that God may accept an invitation from us to get involved, but he certainly will not wait for our permission to get involved. And you would, your response to that should be, well, thank God that's true because of how stubborn I am, I would never ask. So God is present. He is also powerful. By that I mean that he is completely sovereign and completely in control. When, in our story, he rescues Sarah and Abram, he does that. He, he rescues them, he redeems them, and he restores them. And he does it kind of effortlessly for them. But it's not just that that shows how powerful he is. It's the way he orchestrates these events in a way that speaks to us today, in a way that it could not speak to Abram. I want to walk through it, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. First thing is that... Um, His chosen people in this story, that's Abram and Sarah at this point, they go down into Egypt. At that point, they descend further into captivity. Once there, when God perceives that the promise is threatened, it's God who takes action. When there's no other option, God takes action. Through plagues, he he, um, threatens future judgment, which induces Pharaoh to free his people. They leave, heavy with spoil, and they return to the land that he promised them. Now, this should sound familiar to us. God has sort of recreated the Exodus, right? The Exodus story. But he's done it, you know, a half a millennia before it happens. So he didn't do this for Abram's benefit because Abraham couldn't see this. He buried this like a time capsule for generations not yet born, people like us here today, to, to find and to see. And he does this, I think, to show off. Right? I think he wants us to find these things, and I, want, I think he wants us to respond with great confidence in this God. This is a God who can manipulate history at his will, who can shape time and events at his pleasing, who can see forward into the future and know how things are going to work out. And he basically turns history into poetry. He's a complete master of everything. When I think of that, it tells me, studying God's word, when we find these things, studying God's word is like snorkeling in a very, very deep ocean. Because in snorkeling in a very deep ocean, or studying God's word, in both cases, we get a chance to break below the surface. And you perceive these new things around you. But one of the things that you see is that there are depths far beyond what you can understand. Okay? When you study God's word, it's fruitful even when you don't understand everything because of this. Because there are things that you see, but one of the things that you see is that there are far more things to see that you haven't even seen yet. And so it tells you that there's a lot here. When I think of this, this part of God's word, this is kind of my thing. This is the thing that overwhelms me personally uh, because of what what it says to me about God and his care and his power. If Tom was preaching the sermon, this is where he'd start talking like this. But, <laughs> I can't do that because I don't cry. I'm serious. You know how we have like vestigial organs like uh, appendix and 
tonsils, like they, they're there, but no purpose for me. Tear ducts. These don't work for me. Uh, but don't, don't say I don't have control over my emotions. I, I get angry all the time. Um, so God is present, and God is powerful. God is also patient. He is very forgiving. We talked earlier about how he skipped step one and two with Abraham, and he went right to step three. He doesn't do that because there's something wrong with step one and two. There's nothing wrong with being angry at sin in step one. And there's nothing in stage two that's wrong with wanting to see justice done, to want to see atonement made before you can respond with mercy, because otherwise mercy sort of loses its meaning. It it becomes this terrible thing. It becomes unjust. What's wrong with the example I gave is that I go through step one, two, and three as if God has not already taken care of steps one and two. God took all of his anger for all of our sin, and he put it on the shoulders of his son, Jesus. And then Jesus, in stage two, made atonement for that by dying on the cross, carrying that burden. And because Jesus was sinless, and he needed no forgiveness, all the forgiveness that would be generated in stage three, that all overflows and pours out. And it it flows backward in time to Abraham, and it flows forward in time to us here in this tent. And it washes over the entire world, and it washes clean everyone who accepts that sacrifice that Jesus made. So I think this God is the answer to the first question, how did Abraham accomplish this journey? It is this God who propelled Abraham on this journey from an idol worshiper, you know, in Mesopotamia, to a believer who still trusted in his own abilities and uh, in his own wisdom, finally to someone who is willing to surrender control, to even surrender control over the very thing that he had been pursuing his entire life. At the altar, Abraham trusted a God who he believed would raise his son from the dead in order to fulfill the promises that he had made. It's in that that I believe Abraham saw and rejoiced in Jesus' day. He perceived this truth. And he saw it, and he was glad. So now we are in an even better place than Abraham. Because our question is, are we willing to trust a God who has already raised his son, Jesus, from the dead, to ensure that every promise he has made will be kept? So the question is, do you trust this God? I'm going to take a couple of minutes and give us some time to just reflect on this God who revealed himself in this story. Chip's going to sing, and while he does, I would just invite you to reflect, to pray, to just think about um, this God and maybe ask him if he would reveal himself more fully to each one of us so that in that revelation, uh, we would be equipped to just trust him more completely. Thank you.